church and all those visiting with us. I'm, uh, I come this morning uh, with a heavy heart because I'm sure most of you are well, are well aware of what happened uh, yesterday. And what I would like to do in this, in this moment is I want to ask you to do a special time of prayer with me for, for just humanity. Um, my wife and I spent many years in Thailand as missionaries, and one of the prayer times that we just really cherished was this prayer. They just called the Thai church, the, the Thai prayer. And that's where all the saints would gather, and we would say our prayers verbally out loud to God. And I'm, it, may be, it may feel a little weird, I know, but I want to ask saints if you, would, if you would do that in this moment, and, and not as a, a sort of a political move or statement or whatever, but as a statement to cry out to God and asking, God, how do we figure out what it means to be human and what our purpose is here? To love people, cherish life. So saints, would you raise your voices to God, and then I'll close us as we enter into this message. So let's pray. Abba, here we are, uh, your, your creation. <clears throat> and there are just times in life when we just, man, it just, it's confusing. We don't really always know how to pray. Believe in the power of prayer. We do believe in the power of prayer. We believe you hear our prayers, Lord. And in this moment, my prayer is that you help us to understand what it means to be human. To, in its fullness, Lord, what is our purpose? That we would cherish life. Lord, and, the, and those families that are in mourning today. Wondering why such a thing would happen. And searching for hope. And only the way that you would know how, Lord, we pray that you touch them. Reach down, Lord, and touch them. Let them know you're there with them. And Lord, those that would struggle in life to think that this is a good idea, God, give them hope. Let them see how precious life is. Lord, bring us back to you. That's my prayer. Lord, that's our prayer. And as we enter into this moment, Lord, Lord and we look at these parables or... Uh, 
Yeah, just guide this. Let your spirit speak. Just pray this in the name of the Father, the Son, through the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you. Uh, I am honored to be able to uh, be here to uh, continue in this, this series as we look through some of these, these parables, these stories that Jesus taught. And the one that um, I'm going to be speaking on today, it's, it is a very memorable uh, parable. It has a very powerful message behind it, but it's probably not what you would typically think of when you think of the parables of Jesus. And so you'll know real quick uh, when we look at it, if you have your Bibles, open up to Mark chapter 7 or open up your devices, your digital devices and go there. So Mark chapter 7, Jesus gathers a crowd around him, and he tells them this parable, starting in verse 14. He says this, listen to me, all of you, and understand. Here's the story. Nothing that goes into a person from outside can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defiles him. Story concludes. That's it. That's the parable. I know you're not sitting here eager now to run out of here. Well, maybe you are. Uh, to run out of here and start telling your friends and family and neighbors and um, getting all over social media and hashtagging this thing, however you would hashtag it. I get that. Because, again, like I said, it's not one of those, those, those stories that we kind of elevate when we think of the parables in which Jesus taught. But this is an extremely important one. To understand this, you cannot just take it with where it is because you have to really examine the story that's happening around this story during this time to really grasp where we're supposed to go with this. Because this is a story within a story. So to help us to do this, what I've done is I'm going to break the bigger story that Mark had into three different sections, and this is how it'll break down, because really what I think happened here, uh, when, when Mark was receiving this word, he was kind of taken to that 10,000-foot that elevation, and then he's dropped. And we'll see how this, this sort of funnels down be, you know, as you're falling and you come to earth uh, as we explore this, this section. The first part we're going to look in, section one, is I've entitled it, What Are You, li- what are you Living For?, That'll be in verses 1 through 5. So all you note takers, this is your moment. I know it's a blank page, so start filling it out. Sorry. The second section we're going to look at is the reality check. That's verses 6 through 16. And then the final one we're going to look at is what I call the heart examination. So let's go ahead and let's jump into section 1. Mark 7, verse 1. Mark writes this. The Pharisees... And some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem gathered around him. Now, now just pause there for a moment because it's important to note that um, Mark intentionally points these people out as coming from Jerusalem because he wants you to know that these, the, these are the big shots. Uh, these people that are coming to be with Jesus and his disciples, they're not the, the new interns that don't really kind of get it all. They're just sending them up there to see how, how well things go. Uh, these people are the big time. These are the ones that are supposed to know the way of God and be walking in the way of God. And so they come out. He goes on. He said, they observe 
that some of his disciples were eating their bread with unclean, that is, unwashed hands. Yeah, that's kind of gross. For the Pharisees, in fact, all the Jews will not eat unless they wash their hands ritually, keeping the traditions of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they have washed. And there are many other customs that they have received and kept, like washing of cups, jugs, copper utensils, and dining couches. Seems maybe a little uh, obsessive, but that's all right. Then the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, why don't your disciples live according to the traditions of the elders instead of eating bread with ritually unclean hands? Look, on a, on a surface level, this doesn't seem all that bad, right? Any parent in here would love if your children had this tradition of washing your hands before you eat. Amen? Okay. Just making sure. The, the other things, as, as Mark points out, they, they, they seem a bit obsessive. However, I can kind of fall in line with this. Because if you know me, now oh, here we go. I knew it was going to come from this side. I have a bit of a vacuuming obsession. Now, my wife was here to testify this morning to this, and now I have the Bjorklands over here. It, it could be. They live with us for several months, so they saw this. Um, I love the vacuum. My, my, my uh, public confession to you, my wife was like, amen, this morning. I just do. I, 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 there's something about vacuuming that I just get into, and I'm in a whole new world. Now, wives, before you start nudging your husbands in the side and saying, did you hear that? That's the point of the whole message this morning. <laughs> That's not, because it's gotten me into trouble several times. I travel a lot during the fall, and there was one time when I came home, and my wife did an incredible job of cleaning up everything. She vacuumed everything. I walk in the house. I, I tell the kids and everybody, I'm so happy to be home. I love you and everything. But my mind kept telling me I need to vacuum. <laughs> and so I pulled out the vacuum. Let's just say we're working through it still. <laughs> so you can, you, can, you can pray for us on that. And, and by the way, I'm not a vacuum cleaner salesman, so in case anybody's wondering, I just, well, I guess I could. <laughs> I kind of lean into it. So look, at a first glance, I, I kind of get this. It, you know, in my mind, I'm sitting here thinking these Pharisees and, and these scribes, they come, they come to Jesus, and they're just sitting there, and they're just, they're observing what's happening, and just in their own loving, gentle way, they just kind of lean in and whisper to Jesus, and they say, hey, you know, we have these traditions, and it's just about washing hands, not a big deal, but you might want to remind your disciples about that. That's kind of where my mind goes with that. What's wrong with that, right? What's wrong with a good old tradition? We all have them, right? Everybody has traditions or customs that have been passed down from you or things that you've created and you've passed down from others. I want to share a couple of them with you about Christmas time from my family. Christmas is a big deal in my house. I love Christmas. When my first daughter, McKaylin, was born, we started a new tradition that we don't celebrate Christmas the sort of traditional way. We, we, we changed it, and we have a big birthday party on Christmas morning for Jesus. We have a cake, ice cream, decorations, 
And I know you're, you're probably looking at Eden in that picture. She's got a weird face. I don't know what. Well, I do not know what happened in that moment, but she's not crying. But this, this is just what we do Christmas morning. We all get up. We have a big birthday party for Jesus. We love it. That's one of our family traditions. We have another tradition at Christmas time. You can't see it, but everybody, we all did the tree topper, right? Everybody put the, the little star or whatever on top of the tree. And Well, in our family, my wife, um, she made this beautiful cross. And every year, a different kid gets to put the tree topper on top of the tree. Well, my children have started their own tradition in this. And that their tradition is that every year they fight over who gets to put the tree topper on the tree. And I kid you not, last week, we were watching, we love Little House on the Prairie. Anybody else here love Little House on the Prairie? Amen. Good. Some good people here. I kid you not, we were watching the Christmas episode of Little House on the Prairie. And in the very last part of Little House on the Prairie in this episode, they put the tree topper on their tree. And my kids began their annual tradition. <laughs> they started saying, this is my year this year to do it. And then, no, no, it's my year. And then our annual tradition is saying, Jesus doesn't care. <laughs> and then the last one we have at Christmas time, which, we, which I, is my, this is one I hold real dear, is the, we put out the nativity, baby Jesus. Uh, I, I, I love baby Jesus. I love putting baby Jesus out, lighting him up, putting the Christmas lights up. And uh, it's just, it's an annual tradition for us. And most of my neighbors, they really like it too. There's a couple of them that have started their own annual tradition. Because they don't like baby Jesus. And they've cut our Christmas lights. They've wrecked a few things. They've left us a few nasty notes. You know, that's all right. They started their own tradition. In our minds, we're just starting one big neighborhood tradition. Right? So we're bringing everybody together for the holidays. That's kind of how we work. These things that we have, they do, they play a special meaning to us. They hold a very special role within my family. And here's the thing. You come to this, uh, this part in Mark chapter 7, and there's these traditions that are brought up by these Pharisees and the scribes, and they really don't seem all that radical. But here's the thing. These traditions of the elders, in and of themselves, they're not bad things. But sometimes, traditions, which might have once started out for a good reason, can morph into something they never should have been. So what's really happening here? What's really going on here? You know, Jesus, he had incredible abilities, right? Uh, He could walk on water. That's pretty cool, right? What else could he do? Just name out a few. He could raise the dead. That's a neat one. He could turn water to wine. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) What else? Yeah. Make the blind people see. Heal the sick. He could take fish and bread and turn it into an all-you-can-eat country buffet. That's crazy, right? That's Jesus. But here's one of the abilities that I'm always just intrigued with. And that was his ability to just listen. To just pause and listen to the conversations going on around him. You know, throughout the the Gospels, 
we find Jesus in multiple conversations. And if you look closely, you'll notice that he listens really well. And when he hears that things aren't quite going right, he'll address them in a way that they can be helpful. And that's what's happening here. You see, my picture of these, these Pharisees and these scribes lovingly reminding Jesus of some little tradition that they had, just, uh, you know, you, gotta, you, you might want to correct that, Jesus. That's, that's just not, that's not what's really happening. No, you see, they saw their moment, and their moment was in setting him up. Let's look back at what they actually asked. They asked this. Why don't your disciples live according to the traditions of the elders instead of eating bread with ritually unclean hands? The key word here is that word, live. It can also be translated, walk. Why don't your disciples live or walk according to our traditions? You see, what we have here is what those of us from Oklahoma call an old-fashioned gotcha moment. This is their old-fashioned gotcha moment. This was their moment to place everything that he and his disciples were living for into question. It was their way of questioning their dedication to sacred cultural traditions. It was their way of publicly questioning his teachings and the direction that he was leading his disciples. And it was even their way of questioning his love and dedication to God. So they set a stage. And in one corner of that stage, you have these Pharisees and scribes. These individuals that are supposed to be living in the way of God, and they're supposed to know how to do this, and they're supposed to guide people into this. They know, they know the laws, they know the traditions, they keep them, they cross every T and they dot every I. And then on the other side of the stage that they said is Jesus and his disciples. And they're breaking these traditions. They're defiling themselves. They're disgracing their own culture. And then around that stage is an audience. A crowd listening to this. And you have to know that in their mind, some of them are thinking, oh my goodness. Jesus and his disciples just got the bomb dropped on them. It all just came crashing down. So what, what will he do? What's he going to do? So this is where we come into the second section, the reality check. His response, it's really not exactly, I'm sure, what they were looking for. So this is what he says to them. Starting in verse 6, Isaiah prophesied correctly about you hypocrites, as it is written, These people honor me with their lips. But their heart is far from me. They worship me in vain, teaching as doctrine the commands of men. Disregarding the command of God, you keep the traditions of men. You see what he did there? He took that question that they asked, and he spins it on them. And he points it right back at them. 
He says, what are you living for? But let me tell you. He answers it for him. He starts off by saying, you're being hypocrites. Now this time we know that actors were called hypocrites at this time. They would wear a mask and then they would play a certain role. So their real personalities are hidden behind this mask and their acting abilities. And then he follows this with Isaiah 29. But why? Why would he do that? Well, if you go back and you look into this, at this time when Isaiah was saying these words, he was speaking directly to his generation. And he was addressing their hypocrisy and showing just how far that hypocrisy had taken them away from God and into the hands of humanity for hope. So in using this passage, Jesus is basically saying, you are doing the same thing. You're doing the same thing here. You make it look right. You make it sound right. I mean, my goodness, they were so dedicated to this that they would send the big shots from Jerusalem all the way up to find this moment where Jesus and his disciples, were, where they were at the time, they were at the north side of the Sea of Galilee. You're talking about 85 plus miles on foot. So they can live this out, so they can protect it, so they can find their moment. And they thought they did. But then all of a sudden, everything changes on them. Now, Jesus could have stopped right there and it had been just fine. But he doesn't. Instead, he wants to go into an example of just how far off the mark that they had actually gone in this. And so this is where we find this example starting in verse 9. He says this to them. You completely invalidate God's command in order to maintain your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and mother. And whoever speaks evil of father or mother must be put to death. But you say, if a man tells his father and mother, whatever benefit you might have received from me is Corban, that is, a gift committed to the temple, you no longer let them do anything for father and mother. You revoke God's word by your tradition that you hand it down, and you do many other similar things. You see, one of the greatest mistakes of the religious leaders of this time was their inability to recognize good things that could be used for the kingdom of God, like Corbin, and assigning them a self-driven purpose that never, they should have never had in the first place. Look, Corbin is a good tradition. Corbin at this time, it was basically somebody taking um, their land or their wealth or whatever, uh, a portion of that and saying, this portion of what we have been given is given back to God to be used for God. That's not bad. That's a good tradition. But in this, in this example that Jesus brings up, we have an individual that has parents in need. And the command is to take care of your parents. But for this person, greed sets in. And they want to they way out. 
And so they're given permission to claim Corbin. Mom, Dad, sorry. I gave it all to God. But in reality, they're keeping it for themselves. Just like the, day, the generation of Isaiah's day, something was wrong. And because of that, they were off the mark. So this, load, this led me to be asking, why would people do that? Seriously, what, what leads someone to do such a thing? People that I'm sure at one point in their life, they were heading down the right path. They, they were doing great things. Their intentions were well-meaning. But somewhere along the line, it just it took, a, it took a big shift. It, it all changed. How does that happen? Well, thankfully, if you go back to that passage in Isaiah 29, Isaiah actually answers that for his generation. And this is what Isaiah said of his generation. You have turned things around. This is just a few verses down, by the way, from the passage that Jesus had just quoted. You've turned things around as if the potter were the same as the clay. How can what is made say about its maker, he didn't make me? How can what is formed say about the one who formed it, he doesn't understand what he's doing? Think about that. Think about what happened to that generation. Somehow, they elevated themselves as equal to God, to the creator of all things. And in doing that, they began to doubt everything. They questioned God's abilities. They, they thought he doesn't understand they thought they could do better than God. They thought they could run it all better than God. In their mind, and this is the problem. This, this is an extreme danger right here. In their mind, they thought that the clay, that it was time for the clay to take over from the potter. You see, Jesus is no fool and bringing them back to this passage in Isaiah. Because he recognized that that generation in which he was in was acting just like the generation of Isaiah's day. They're being actors. It's a sham. Bogus lives. Taking things that would have been just fine and elevating them into something that they really were not. They believed that the clay knows better than the potter. Remember, they're the ones that brought up the question, why don't your disciples live according to the traditions of the elders? And they got their answer. It just wasn't exactly the answer that they were expecting because it was a reality check of what they were living for. So that stage that they set just took a drastic turn. And now you can imagine at this point that everyone listening to this must have been in shock. 
And so, to bring this moment to an end, Jesus gathers that crowd around him. And he says to them, verse 14, Listen to me, all of you, and understand. Nothing that goes into a person from the outside can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. Decades, decades of sacred traditions destroyed in one short parable. You see, God's kingdom, as much as we often mistakenly think it is, it is not built upon the sacred traditions of humanity. Amen? My old, one of my old mentors when we were church planners up in Canada, Jeff Christofferson, has written several books, but one of his most recent ones I was reading a few weeks back, and he, has, he had this in his book, what he says about sacred traditions. He says, Our sacred has no birthright in the kingdom of God. The kingdom-centric new church holds as its highest value the redemptive mission of God. It understands the difference between tools, worship service, buildings, and staff, and purpose, becoming a rescuing and restoring community. It holds its sacred forms loosely, and it grips its eternal purpose tightly. Amen. You know, Jesus had a, a, a bad habit of breaking traditions. I mean, think about it. Healing on the Sabbath. As a no-no, don't do that. Touching sick people like lepers, that's a no-no. Don't do that. Talking to women, that's a no-no back then. Don't do that. Eating with sinners, no-no. Visiting and befriending Gentiles, mm-mm. Nope, not good. Forgiving people's sin and bypassing the temple sacrifices, Mm. No. This one about washing of hands and unclean foods, this one is a very important one for him to break. Why? Well, I think largely because it forced every one of them to stop and think. If these things aren't true, breaking these sacred traditions are not what defiles you, then what, if anything, does. And this is where we go into the last section, the heart examination. And in this last uh, section of this larger story, we find Jesus and he's away in a private setting in a home with his disciples. Now he had left everybody else with enough information to put two and two together. I kind of think that as they kind of tacked this out, many of them did, but boy, his disciples didn't. And so they're in this private setting with him, and they're, they're asking this question. You know, Jesus said, these things are not the stuff that defiles us. Then, then what, if anything, does? And so he addresses that question for them. He says this, Are you also lacking in understanding? Don't you realize that nothing going into a man from outside can defile him? For it doesn't go into his heart, but it goes into the stomach and is eliminated. And yes, that is what you're thinking is what he's talking about in that passage. As a result, he made all foods clean. 
Then he said, what comes out of a person that defiles him? For from within, out of people's hearts, come evil thoughts, sexual immoralities, thefts, murders, adulteries, greed, evil actions, deceit, lewdness, stinginess, blasphemy, pride, and foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. There's a few very important things we have to mention in this. Number one, this is not a clean bill of health. Write that down. Not a clean bill of health. Jesus does not say everything is good, no worrying about being defiled. Everything is clean, so let's go to Wendy's, get a double baconator, and party like it's 1999. That would have been nice, but that's not what he says. He doesn't give a clean bill of health. He doesn't release everybody from a hard truth. And that truth is that there is a problem. There's a problem. So what's the problem? Well, it's the heart. If you notice, three times in the context of this bigger story, the heart came up. The first time was in the passage from Isaiah, where Isaiah was talking to his generation. He said that their hearts were far from God. And then twice in this meeting, this private meeting with his disciples. Why would he do that? Well, the, um, the Greek word for heart is kardea. And at this time, the kardea was, to believe, was believed to be the uh, physical and spiritual life of an individual. So, if the heart's wrong, then nothing is working right. Because the heart controlled everything. That's a big problem. That's a big problem to have. So how do you know there's a heart problem? Well, if you look at the list here that Jesus leaves his disciples. You'll notice woven in this are two things. One are external actions that everybody sees. Those things are not hidden from the world around them. The individual, everybody around them sees as they're being played out in an individual's life. But the other thing are internal motivations. And those things are hidden. Nobody knows them. I don't know your heart, and you don't know my heart. You can't know that. The only one who does is you and me. And God. I think Jesus did this to tell his disciples that the only way to know if you've got a heart problem is to give yourself a heart examination. To stop and ask yourself, how are my daily actions affecting those around me? And what truly is the reason behind them? What's happening on the inside to make me do the things I do on the outside? Is it 
deceit? Is it pride? Is it stinginess? Is it greed? That list can go on and on and on and on. Or, or is the heart good? Because it's for the love of God and his kingdom. You see, church, please hear me in this moment. This is, this is so important for you to hear me in this moment. This is that point if Ryan were here, he'd say, look up at me for a second. So look up at me for a second. Because this is important to know. This is not a ticket to go and judge other people. This is not a ticket to go and judge other people. This is a call to examine the self. To give yourself a heart examination. To go and look into the mirror of life, however hard that might be, and be honest with what you see. To say, what am I living for? Check the reality of the situation and then examine the heart. And we can see how this, uh, this story within a story would have deeply connected to the, the original audience. We ask ourselves, what does it mean for us? What does it mean for us today? And so in this moment, I wanna, I wanna, I'm going to speak directly to South Fellowship. If you'll, if you'll open your bulletins, and on that first page, you will find our mission statement for this church, this church body. Will you read this with me? Living in the way of Jesus with the heart of Jesus. That is our mission statement. As a church body, we are saying that this church will be known for living in the way of Jesus with the heart of Jesus. I love this mission statement. I love it. But here's the problem. That first part, living in the way of Jesus, that can be faked. That can be faked. We just read how it was faked during Isaiah's day and even during the time of Jesus. Or these these great religious leaders who were supposed to be living in the way of God and leading people into that. But the reality is they were living bogus lives. But here's the thing, and this is why this mission statement is so beautiful. Because you cannot live in the way of Jesus with the heart of Jesus in a fake way. That cannot be faked. Living in the way of Jesus with the heart of Jesus. If that's who we are and that's the, the direction in which we're going, those two things come together. 
my goodness, the impact that this congregation will make locally as well as globally is going to be unbelievable for the kingdom of God. And it's going to be a beautiful thing. And that's where I see us going. You know, for those of you that were here last week, and we'll pull everybody in together on this one. Uh, we were blessed to hear the last uh, message from our, our pastor, Ryan. Because he and his family are moving into a new chapter in their lives. And during his message last week, which if you weren't here to listen to that, please go online and listen to it. It's a beautiful thing. But during his message last week, he took us through this journey that he and Kelly and the kids went on um, that led them to the point where they had to make the decision that they did make. And it began many months back when we were in that Jonah series. And he talked about how during that series, that's when he got the phone call from this church in Escondido. And the first phone call for him, he said, was easy. He just told him no. He knows where he's supposed to be. He's there and thank you, but I'm not interested. And then he went back and he started pondering that, started evaluating the whole thing while he's preaching through Jonah, the prophet who said no to God. And he, and he starts to say, am I being like Jonah? And so he calls him back and he, and he says, you know, l- let's talk. Let's just talk. And it was during those conversations that odd things began to happen in their lives, if we remember this. One of them was somebody that came up and um, they spoke words into his life about what it might look like if South were less reliant on him. And then he received that odd text message about, hey, you interested in selling your home? Like, I'm not, we didn't even think about that. Putting their house up in the market and selling it. And then they talked about how they, they, they loved that um, TV show, Restaurant Impossible. And the new season was coming out. And the first episode of the new season was a restaurant in Escondido. The city where that church is. And then there was that meeting with Norma and the hymn that came up. I'll go where you want me to go. And that moment where they started to ask themselves, why will we not do that? And then there was the scripture reading from Luke 18. It says, Peter says to him, I've left all we had to follow you. And Jesus said to him, truly I tell you, no one who has left home or wife or brothers or sisters or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God will fail to receive many times as much in this life and eternal life into the age to come. And then he went on the run. And during that run, he decided he needed to write two letters. One was an acceptance letter. The other was a letter of rejection. And he did the right thing. He took it to his wife. And he said, honey, read this and tell me what you think. And she just handed it back to him. And she said, you know what we have to do. You know, last week, as I'm sitting over here, Listening to this, I was just blown away because I couldn't help but think how much that sounded like they went through an interesting, very similar process 
to what we just explored in this breakdown of this bigger story. This, this process of asking, what are we living for? Checking the reality of the situation and then giving yourself a hard examination. Now, I'm going to miss them a lot, as well as many of us will. But I am beyond thankful that they gave us this example. Not just within the last decision that they had to make, but that they gave us this example over and over and over for the past seven years. An example of always asking, what am I living for? What's the reality of my life? And where's my heart in all of this? So maybe our call to action today is to join in this and see where that might lead us. You know, I'm, I'm so grateful I got this first Sunday because I can't think of a better place to begin that process than as we come to the Lord's table. It's here where we, we spend, we're going to spend just a moment processing through this. Just you and God processing through these questions. And then I'm going to call us together after you come up and you take the elements. I'm going to call us back together so that we can take this and share this as a family together. Sharing these elements in remembrance of what this table means and really what life is all about. So what we'd like to ask you to do is, those that are going to serve, you can please come up, is to exit your road to the left, enter back into the right, hold on to the elements, hold on to the elements. And spend time with God, just meditating on this. And then as everybody gets their, their, gets their bread and gets the cup, we'll come back together as a family and we'll share in this together.